Hello, and welcome back to Parallel Passion. First, I'd like to thank everyone who continues to support this show on Patreon. You're the best. If you wish to join these awesome people, go to patreon.com slash or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Today, I'm joined by Tim McNamara. He recently wrote a book about Rust programming language, so we talk about the process of writing a technical book like that. Then we talk a bit about running, setting and achieving goals, procedural art, OpenStreetMap, and crowdsourced biology. Specifically, New Zealand's flightless parrots and other peculiar birds in the area. There's a lot here, so let's jump right into it. Here's Tim. Hi, Tim. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Hi, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. I think you're, uh, well, not, uh, not that I think, I know you're my first uh, New Zealand guest. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, it's very uh, interesting to have someone like from 12 hour difference on, on the podcast. It's like interesting to record. <laughs> I mean, being in New Zealand, it's quite strange because there's a lot of, uh, you know, this trend about remote working is very, very popular now, but, <laughs> New Zealand always fails with the time zone difference. The time zone difference is always a problem. I think, you know, for people in the States, it's not as bad. But if we need to collaborate with Europeans, it, it's difficult. But yeah, um, yeah. I think that's just the reality. We get to live in a beautiful place, but uh, <laughs> sometimes we have late night calls. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Uh, but like be, before we begin, uh, why don't you give like a short um, explanation of who you are and uh, what do you do? Okay, so I am a uh, developer advocate at Canonical. Canonical is the company behind the Ubuntu operating system. And in particular, I work on a project called Juju. Juju mm -hmm. is a developer or DevOps tool that sort of nobody knows about, but <laughs> it's actually really, really good and has been around for a long time. Outside of that, for myself, I have been programming probably for about 10-15 years but predominantly open source it's only been in the last about seven years or so where I've had a full-time job where I have had code development as why you know I get paid mm -hmm. to go to work <laughs> and so stay, stay at um, home just work remotely right <laughs> the, yeah yeah right so uh, I have spent a lot of time in Python And over the last sort of five or six years ago, five or six years, I'd say, I've also been experimenting a lot with the Rust programming language. And I am extremely excited about Rust, and not just from the technical standpoint, but also from its ability to kind of bring a whole new community of software developers into systems programming and into other new parts of programming that they have always thought were or they've been told that are, are impossible for them so over the last i guess three years a little bit longer i have been writing a book mm -hmm. and uh yeah so i thought i'd come and chat about the process behind writing a book and talk about that as one of the things that i'm really passionate about because i believed that it would be Well, not easy. <laughs> I thought it would be challenging and difficult, but I could not understand that people would take on projects that would end up taking two or three years of their life. And for me, that's exactly what has happened. Which <laughs> <laughs> um, So uh, there are lots and lots of positives and a couple of very big negatives, uh, but Yeah, so I'm I'm happy to answer any questions related to, to, to writing the book. Yeah, I do want to dive into how it is to write a, a book like that. Like, why did you even decide, like, oh, I'm going to write a, a book on, on like, Rust? <laughs> so, one doesn't decide to write a book. <laughs> you get a... <laughs> um, for me, well, there was a personal motivation, which was that... I had been noticing the quality of technical material sort of sliding downwards. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I was buying, didn't matter what publisher I was buying them from, it just seemed to be of poorer and poorer quality. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I could write a book that was excellent. Mm -hmm. 
I thought that I could prove to myself that it's possible to write a technically difficult book that uh, was very challenging to readers who wanted to engage, but also accessible. And so for me, I had a very ambitious target of being able to write write the best book that I ever read. Is there a technical book that you like already that uh, would like served as an inspiration of sorts? Yeah, there's two actually. One of them is called, it's quite unknown, it's an unreilly book. Uh, it's called Data Analysis with Open Source Tools mm -hmm. by Philip K. Janet. This was a book that kind of opened my eyes to data science as a field. And, you know, I've, over, one thing I didn't mention in the introduction was that I have spent over you know, four or five years as a consulting data scientist And I think this book and one other by another New Zealander actually um, called Collective Intelligence or something. His name is Toby Sergeant, I believe. I can't remember his last name. <laughs> <laughs> but those two books were full of examples that were very practical, but they were also quite rich and and they didn't keep things at a surface level and it didn't just document the API or it wasn't just republishing the official documentation or, and they weren't rushed. And those two books, I think stood out for me as the type of content that I wanted to aspire to. And the other reason was that I was offered <laughs> <laughs> someone came to me from uh, the publisher. What their job title is acquisitions editor. And they send emails to developers and say, hi, Tim, <laughs> or hi, Miha, would you like to write a book? <laughs> It's a great experience. Uh, and you say, you know, naively, oh, I would love to write a book. No, no, you reply, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't have time for that. <laughs> That's right. That's the correct answer. That's the <laughs> Yeah, any so if you're arrogant a little bit like me and wanted to decide that you know all of these all of these materials are not worth buying and you you're convinced that you can write the right book then you say yes. Uh for me it was a really strange experience though the initial uh so my publisher actually had two other attempts at writing this title. So there were at least three authors that they had already burned out trying to write this single book. And so I was, I originally came in as the co-author of another, so someone had already written about five chapters mm -hmm. uh, and then he basically walked away after we had a couple of conversations and uh, he's, so I had to start again. <laughs> and so I started from scratch and uh, he had actually I think there was some other person that they were trying to get involved in. So they, another bad sign, if you're ever starting a project like this, and one of the things that I've found really difficult to manage personally is that you're always under pressure. Mm -hmm. you're, and for us, for me, I've always been late. So the project from the publisher's point of view was already maybe a year behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point in time, O'Reilly was bringing out a book. Uh, no Starch Press has already, you know, has the official book. And so Manning was feeling like, oh, man, we really got to get a Rust book out. And so, I, <laughs> so I'm very, very lucky that they decided to send me a note because I have learnt an extraordinary amount by writing this material. Mm -hmm. But also it's lucky from their point of view as well, like, If they had sent, I, I guess they must have sent other people emails as well saying, hey, would you like to write a Rust book? And everyone sort of said, well, I would love to write a Rust book, but I am not going to do so. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's the, the kind of thing like you, you would love to see a book with your name on it. It's like, oh, look, I wrote the book. But uh, when you realize how much work that is, you're like, ah, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, realistically... And they're actually very honest. I, when you before you sign the contract, there are at least three conversations. Uh, one is the initial kind of smiles, and you know everything's good. And then there's <laughs> one or two others where they get other people from the company to say this will be very very challenging. Think of your most difficult software project, and this will be as stressful as that, probably more. 
because instead of the stress being uh, shared amongst your whole team, you've got to do this on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, the the editorial team and so forth will be there to support you. But realistically, as an author, this is your project. It's your problem. And so, uh, yeah, so that was, they are very, very honest and upfront. And to, as it happens, they're also correct. It has been a very, very difficult process. <laughs> um, so to write, to, just to, make, to put things into context, um, a 400-page book is roughly 100,000 words. Mm-hmm. So in order to produce that book in one year, you need to write 2,000 words per week. Yeah, and it's it's different with technical books, right? Because the words don't equal words of just like prose because you no, have... No, 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 no. You are very, very correct. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have examples. You have to like dive into the language. You have to like extract stuff out from other people that they wrote. It's um... So the editors and I work chapter by chapter. And... There will be normally uh, every chapter has a big example. So, for example, uh, I wanted to show people that they could write a CPU emulator. So we write a CPU we write a CPU emulator from scratch, mm. <laughs> and it turns out that that is not a project that you can get right first time <laughs> because once you write it, you then need to simplify the code. <laughs> and then you need to change the code so that you've only used the language features that you've already introduced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> you go to reviews and, you know, the editor comes back and you're like, man, I'm, I, I was three months late with this thing. Let me, uh, let me go. Like, let this, let this out. Uh, and they say, actually, you know, there's, this is unclear. You've, you haven't bridged the section correctly. Or who comes up with the chapters? Like who who uh, develops the in like this will be the chapters. This is what the examples will be. Yeah. So every publisher is different. Uh, for Manning, the there's a long process before you start writing any content of mentally creating a picture of what the book will be like, and so there is a very long process of developing a table of contents that's quite rich sort of almost down to the section level uh, now to answer you know who has you have you as the author have 100 control at least that's been my experience and mm-hmm. so they will say things like wow i don't think that are you sure that you want to write a database like in a chapter and i will say yeah, I think I think we can do that. And uh, for that chapter, you know, it's sort of 60 pages long. And it was probably too long. But also we've had some other comments that say, this is the best chapter in the book. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so they, you, your editors work differently than I expected. I thought that an editor for a book publisher or a technical book publisher would come back with like, track changes in, in Word or whatever. Or in our right. case, because we were, everything's like an ASCII doc, um, it's like inside a Git repository that they control, that they would be kind of like submitting pull requests back to your code, <laughs> <laughs> like your manuscript. But no, that doesn't happen. They just basically say, this is, I've got a question mark about this. You know, this looks too rushed. I don't think you've introduced this term. But everything is your responsibility, or at least that's been... So all of the illustrations, all of the code examples, all of the prose, mm-hmm. and even simple diagrams take maybe three or five hours. Yeah, uh, There are some diagrams, some of these technical diagrams that I've spent over a week on. And, <laughs> I, and you know, because you only realistically have, well, I have tried to keep the cadence of three nights per week between 8 and 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. and one solid piece of writing on the weekend. Mm. So that would be like a maybe a five-hour block. Yeah, that's quite a big uh, time dedication to, to the project. Yeah. So, And the problem with the five-hour block is that I also, <laughs> you know, I also became a father during this process. <laughs> <laughs> 
um uh yeah congratulations i guess but also yeah that must have uh disrupted your plans a bit <laughs> right so exactly and um uh, so they took priority they do take my girls take priority oh uh, yeah hopefully on my weekends right. <laughs> now and so <laughs> and so also on the weekends that is also now that originally it was a five-hour block and now it is friday and saturday night is also sort of a, another like three hour chunks from after they're in bed. So they get, uh, so yeah, from about 8 p.m. until maybe 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. So the disadvantage of using that schedule, or well, a very significant disadvantage, is that there are typos everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and like as a reader, typos suck. Like they're so annoying. Yeah. Yeah. But as someone who's producing, you know, I'm like, I'm tired. It's hard. Uh, so, and it hurts to receive these comments like, oh, this is sloppy. And I'm like, yeah, I'll fix it. I will. I promise you I'll fix it. When you buy my book, like today, let's say, um, you get the ability to comment on any single uh, chapter or even sentence that is in the draft manuscript we have. And so now I also don't have, I don't just have to respond to emails from my editors. I also have like 60, actually probably over 100 people commenting on very, very small details of every <laughs> single thing that I so. Yeah, like as if anything, software developers, like we we are, um, yeah, if you make a mistake, we will let you know you made the mistake. That's, that's what oh, we yeah. do. And, right? and they should. <laughs> I mean, the thing is like, that's my responsibility my responsibility is to get this right and also my personal commitment to myself was to write the best book i'd ever read and so i promise every single person who has been disappointed with typos and with you know the occasional sentence that is like missing three three words or something or i've skipped an idea i will fix everything before it goes to print mm -hmm. i'm able to promise that because i've been able to deliver like 300 plus chapters now with very, very like diverse and technical content. And it's, but um, like, I appreciate the, uh, I, I appreciate the irritation that the readers are feeling right now, but also from people who are looking into or considering writing a book themselves, the goals that you have for perfection are very, very difficult to obtain. And I think it's important also to kind of give yourself a break sometimes, which mm -hmm. is why for me, I've tried to allow myself to make small errors. Mm. And because I know that once I have finished the manuscript and it's submitted, then there are other people like, like there are paid copy editors, you know, these people whose job it is to fix all the typos. Yeah, that was just my next next question. Like, uh, there should be a copy editor going through the typos, and they should be the one filtering it out, right? Yeah. So, and this is the difference between what people have received now. I've I've sold about three and a half thousand copies, and what people buy right now is this thing called the early access program. So you get a draft copy and the promise is that it will be copy edited and perfect when you receive the final, you know, when you receive like the print copy, if you've bought the print copy or the PDF or EPUB or what have you. So yeah, so I shouldn't need to worry about it. It should all be fixed. The comments have been made. People have suggested like this is an error. And so that will be very easy to find in a copy editor later it's just it's just irritating because i don't want i hate letting people down no yeah i i wanted to ask like with with um yeah especially with the with the new kid and everything how's your sleep schedule because um you know sleep deprivation has massive effect on um focus and that like also typos and everything yeah so sleep has been very difficult i'm quite disciplined in some ways so i have attempted so my schedule in the day is uh, I work remotely from home. Mm -hmm. So I'll get up, do some exercise and make sure that I finish close to five, help with dinner and so forth. Uh, basically give myself a break until about 7.30 or 8 p.m. And then at 8 o'clock, I will try and try and get some writing done. 
And then there's this problem, though, is that you can't turn your brain off late at night after you've been working, <laughs> like on something that's mentally quite challenging. Yeah. And so uh, to get around that, I have I, I, I've tried to limit spending a lot of time on very complex topics late at night. So if I know that something is very mentally challenging, I'll try to turn off at 10 rather than push through until later. Mm-hmm. Um, now that, but yeah, sleep has been a very, has been a problem and um, I'm definitely not perfect at maintaining. I think my, yeah, I think the term is sleep hygiene. Oh, and the other thing that's helped actually has been the three day the three days during the week. So it's not every every day all the time, mm-hmm. and also making sure that my weekends during the day, actually having my girls there, has meant that I can't. I must do something outside of the house. Yeah, and so that that that's that's actually been a surprising, um, surprisingly positive factor. Yeah, who would think, you know, going outside in, in nature to, to <laughs> where we were like meant to be, that it helps our mental health. Oh, yeah, it, like absolutely. It's surprising how nice it is to be outside and like, yeah, in nature in particular. And mm-hmm. I'm not as fit as I used to be, but I, <laughs> <laughs> before I had kids, I was an, I was a marathon runner ah. and I really enjoyed being out and it was a similar mental problem actually with the book i have got this expectation to my like it's a very difficult challenge but with running and long distance being a long distance runner it's there's pain mm-hmm. and part of the reason why it's good is that it's so hard yeah and so yeah i'm just hard on myself perhaps the thing with marathons is like it's just long like you don't know how long it is and then like you you run it you run and you keep running and you're like oh i'm not even halfway through like this is how long will this take and if you've never run ran one it's very hard to imagine how long it really is and like how much stress a human body can tolerate um it's uh it's quite something um so yeah i'm a i'm a runner myself so i i know what you're talking about (laughs) Yeah, it, 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 it hurts and uh, you don't know when it's going to end and you just keep going though, and eventually you finish. But how did you come up with this three-day and uh, weekend schedule? Did you hear it from uh, someone or did you have some prior experience on working on like side projects or anything like that? Well, it was me and my partner. We, uh, so she, <laughs> before I signed the contract, we had a big, it was actually a series of, discussions and i committed to her that two days of the week would be ours so and at least one of the weekend days would be ours and so that kind of set the framework up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i also knew that this was not a sprint exercise and so exhausting myself you know staying up to 3 a.m and multiple nights a week and then you know putting out shitty code is no good and so i wanted a cadence that i could maintain that i may need to maintain for several months uh and in reality it has been uh it's been years of uh and the yeah so but in terms of how i came up with it we we just came up with it together it was like well what can we agree on that is likely to be maintainable do you think being a marathon runner helped with taking a big project like that that you know that you have to pace yourself probably i mean it wasn't conscious Mm. but i think that it's a similar process that you have a goal that you want to achieve you know and you need to be able to train and being consistent is almost more important than the amount of training per week, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. or that is if I'm out on the street three or four days a week, even if it's a horrible training session, it's important that I got out there. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, even if I write 60 good words, 
that's more, you know, that's still 60 words closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that cadence or kind of, kind of maintaining the momentum is very, very important because there have been some times when, when work has got too much and I've needed to kind of push pause on the book. And then it's very, very difficult to come back and continue to push out uh, like a couple hundred words in an evening mm-hmm. plus a code example or a diagram or, mm. you know, whatever it is. Um, but when you're doing it regularly and maintaining that consistency, I think it's easier for you to switch on to work. Now it's easier to, for, to switch off mm-hmm. and uh, it's easier to, to, to focus. And yeah, so it wasn't conscious, but I think that having that experience or kind of that mental attitude towards trying to achieve a goal even if it's a very personal goal is is useful yeah there's there's something that my friend said that um like it was applicable to running but i think it also applies in this case and he said like whenever you don't feel like running like if the weather is not good or anything like just dress up and go out for one kilometer and if you don't like it turn around because the thing is as you know once you're out and you're running for one kilometer like you're already warmed up so you're gonna continue to whatever like the the hard part is just going out the hard part is just starting oh yeah and then yeah. like then things flow right yeah that that, that is that it's, it's perfect because you're never out for one kilometer mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly and it's exactly the same problem actually that i have right now this mental block of just kind of getting the shoes on because um i mean i don't want to sound completely negative about this writing process it is actually very positive there has been um, it's been great for my reputation you know professionally uh it probably got me the job that i have now the uh it's been very informative or it has been an amazing learning experience being able to challenge myself to you know write a cpu emulator or (laughs) uh to learn about let's say the NTP protocol and figure out how computers tell time. And so I'm also teaching myself and that has been extremely rewarding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in terms of the negatives there, um, I've had to put a lot on hold. And so my health has suffered, uh, my relationship. And honestly, the relationship is kind of, it's definitely, it's taken a beating. Like, um, you know, it's been, there have been a couple of weeks where, you know, she's, flown home with the kids back to her parents' house and said, you know, like, sort it out, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, there, so the relationship has been, you know, there have been challenges there. Um, the other thing is that I haven't had like very much time for any of my hobbies. I can't, I always feel the sense of guilt and, uh, I've always want to do good by my readers and everyone. I, I sort of, now that, I have thousands of people who have bought the book who say things like, oh, this is the best book I've ever read. Like, I can't give up now. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, like, and so, but that just adds more pressure. And kind of absorbing that pressure has been quite challenging. So I was just thinking about it the other day. Like, what's an example? Like, I look at my Steam account. I logged back into my Steam account because uh, I was like, oh, I should play video games. Like, I haven't played video games in a while. Like, I haven't played anything since 2016. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, like, there, like no achievements unlocked at all. Like, <laughs> because I, <laughs> yeah, like, I have, uh, I had this project that has always been there. And so, uh, and it's been very, very difficult to give myself permission to work on other things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be so relieved when, uh, when this thing is finally done, I've got one and a half. Actually, no, I've got one and a bit chapters left. Mm-hmm. So I'm just so the the there are twelve chapters in the book, um, and I'm just about to submit the eleventh one to my editor. And so, and the the final chapter is going to be kind of like the finale for me personally. I'm talking, mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping because I've already written the code for it. I actually, um, so I'm hoping that it'll be quick, and then I'll be able to have then it'll be Christmas. And the book will be done. And I'll finally be able to do things like go running again, lift weights. Uh, oh, right. Because you're on the other side of the globe. Christmas is warm weather for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Christmas is Christmas at the beach, man. Like, yeah. I can't even imagine. It's worse than that, actually, because all of the 
we they don't make Christmas at the beach movies. So you get this weird cultural thing where in the shops they have fake snow on the windows, and <laughs> <laughs> but it's like thirty degrees. It's ridiculous. That, that is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> but hey. You know, we are a colony and we will accept that um, <laughs> that as our cultural heritage. Um, so what uh, what other hobbies uh, are you looking forward to to like get back into other than, than running, obviously? One of the things that I really like and uh, one of the things that I've put on hold a lot is procedural art and um, um, this kind of concept. I think it's called like proc gen. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Generative art to me is really interesting from multiple points of view. It's technically very challenging, which is always, um, which is always appealing. It is, uh, it's this interesting blend of, there's random numbers everywhere, but it, there's this nice cohesion to it. So it's a piece that is really interesting is, uh, isn't just random. It's, you know, there's, there's, there's design in there as well. And, uh, I would love to be able to make, uh, so one of the things that I want to do is, is plotter art, which, um, so you can get this kind of X, Y plotters and they can draw like a physical pen. And I just kind of, yeah, I, I would like to be able to kind of have this blend of technology in the real world. Uh, and there are other things that I would like to do. I really, um, I, want to explore the process of creating a procedural world or like this is going to sound stupid but like a zero player game <laughs> where <laughs> like you set the initial conditions for your world because you're god so like conway's way of life or something like that conway's game of life yeah yeah right except you are conway well like you you, you set the rules for conway's world um, and then you kind of see what evolves um so mm-hmm. that's yeah perfect and um but i thought you know you could do it in three dimensions and you can play around with gravity and mm-hmm. uh, certain plants um require gravity or actually every living thing requires gravity to, to to grow but um yeah we can kind of change the rules of, of physics and you know like yeah i only saw like uh, one of your blog posts about berlin noise i think okay. and there's like a clock and a mug and whatever like did you make those or were those just renders Oh, so those are just renders. Mm. Um, the only people who have bought my things <laughs> are me and my girlfriend, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I am I I put on my blog like it's aspirational. I put on artist because I like to express myself creatively. But I am, uh, yeah. No one, no one. My works do not sell for tens of thousands of dollars. Maybe you can put it on the cover of your book. Yeah, potentially. Well, actually, not this one. So after this book, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, after this particular book, I have ideas about doing books that are simpler. Oh, yeah. So you didn't learn your lesson about not writing a book again. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I haven't. But, uh, yeah, no, I haven't done that. I think the challenge, the reason why it's so hard there has been that effectively, uh, I've had to learn a lot of concepts and um, so I'm not a systems programmer. I don't even have a computer science degree. And so that again, you know, going back to, you know, why Rust is interesting, you know, being able to convince a, a new generation or a different gener- a different segment of the programming community that it's okay to learn about these very technically intense topics. That's, you know, you have permission to do so. Um, like I am the audience for my, for my book, mm-hmm. and uh, but I think what I've really enjoyed is actually taking one example and uh, of a thing and simplifying it down and creating some words around it and some diagrams, and each of those takes me, you know, I'm not going to spend days and days and days, but I mean, I could publish blog posts that are like five thousand words long, and three of those is probably worth, you know, maybe, I don't know, $8 or something or eight euro, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I could do that um, as a way around. So kind of to balance things out because mm. I really enjoy the process of writing. I actually quite enjoy the, uh, I like the relationship that I've 
created with my readers. So I'm really active on Twitter and the feedback that I receive is really positive. And so I'm good at it. It's just, sadly, it's just hard. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to be able to provide myself with a little bit more balance because right now I'm very unbalanced. Mm. And so, you know, if, you know, to go with that race analogy, right now I'm in a phase where I can see the finish line, or at least I can kind of feel the finish line. Mm. Like if you're in a marathon runner, you know, once you hit, you know, in a marathon, if you get to 20 kilometers, like you're kind of exhausted because you've probably paced yourself badly and you've probably gone out too fast. And <laughs> you're, you're describing <laughs> and then, uh, like a month ago, like my race. Exactly. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, no, I've yeah. still got 22 kilometers to run. Yeah, yeah. And then, but once you get to 35. Yeah. You still have seven. Yeah. Well, you still have seven. <laughs> That's the thing. Like you're like, oh, I already ran 35, but I still have seven. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So it's not not exactly the same feeling for everyone, perhaps. But yeah, the um, <laughs> we have you can feel the finish line, and suddenly your legs move just a little bit quicker because, uh, and then right at the end, you know, you just forget all of the pain. Yeah. You know, your legs suddenly are fine, and then you sprint right at the end. Yeah. And I'm probably at about that 35 kilometer mark because mm-hmm. even when I get this 12th chapter finished. I now need to fix all these typos. Yeah. <laughs> I now need to add all of the polish. Um, and yeah, but hopefully copy editor will take some of that. Burden. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Like I will, I'm not on my own. I would love to be able to kind of use creativity. Um, I want to get outside again. I have recently allowed myself to, get involved with another community, which I used to be very active with, mm-hmm. which is the, um, uh, it's called Humanitarian Open Street Map. Right. Yeah. You mentioned that. Let's, yeah. Well, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Well, have, yeah. So the, the, the first thing, Humanitarian Open Street Map is the open street map applied to humanitarian problems. So then the question is, well, what is open street map? And then if you haven't encountered it, it is maybe similar in a, roughly to wikipedia but for mapping Mm -hmm. so it's completely crowdsourced where everyone in the world has the ability to edit the map and you can draw outlines of buildings or you can draw the line of where the street is or you can you know if you want to get very detailed you can plot exactly where every tree is in your park (laughs) or you can say like here is the park bench and <clears throat> and uh, the Germans are very, very good. <laughs> like, if you, like every single traffic light in most major cities in Germany has been mapped in this this thing. Wow! And not just that there is a traffic light, but like this is the type of ma- uh, the type of light. So is it a sodium with the kind of the yellow, or is it an LED? So it actually, and then there are there. Are, because uh, it, it's geeks that are doing this. And so they've created like the night map, which will create a render of the city colored in the correct lighting of the street oh, wow. because they're all marked up. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. That's insane. Like some people have no limits. I, I think I'm crazy, but you know, there's no, there's no limit to crazy. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Not sure that's a compliment though. <laughs> right, right, right. It's perfect. I just think it's amazing that you... Uh, and maybe 10 years ago, there was nothing on the map. Mm. Like it was absolutely blank. And now you have every, like in these major cities where you have large communities of mappers, every park, like every car park is marked with the time that you're allowed to spend there, how much it costs per hour. Um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's incredible. And so, that's OpenStreetMap. And then the question is, well, what is this humanitarian OpenStreetMap? Yeah. Well, it turns out that not everyone has, like, fiber internet and not everyone has a laptop. And uh, some of the places in the world, like, don't have official maps. So if you're in the Pacific Islands, the maps that – the official maps that, you you know, your country may use might have been generated by the Americans in World War II. So there's a difference between 
every street lamp has been illuminated <laughs> versus, uh, you know, there might be a dot for the village. Yeah. Now, the reason why that's a big problem for disaster response is that let's say that there is a massive typhoon in some place. Um, and it doesn't need to be a tiny little Pacific island. It could be uh, the Philippines or Nepal or, or and that wouldn't be a storm. The typhoon would be an earthquake or it could be uh, anywhere in the Caribbean or it could be anywhere in the world. A responding agency like a Red Cross or MSF or pick your agency needs to have a map of what the places that they are going to. Mm-hmm. Without that, they can't accurately they can't accurately well, it takes them much longer to kind of get up and running. And they, they can't rely on satellite photos for, for that? No, because satellite images are, well, okay, yes and no. So you can't rely on satellite images to distinguish between a driveway and a track that is publicly accessible. So, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because uh, you can't use a satellite map to distinguish between uh a shed and a building you know like it might be a storage or uh, actually that's not a very good example because even in humanitarian okay so then it's like well, what is so humanitarian open street map is a joint effort between the local communities people on the ground with local information and uh and people who are actually looking and tracing like satellite images or right. images from drone photography Right. So that's yeah. what I would. That's 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 the group that I'm involved with in, here in here in Wellington, New Zealand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and like, this kind of sounds ridiculous, but actually, there, it solves a really interesting problem that you can create a publicly accessible data set that is better than the official sources from anywhere in the world because we can also rely on uh, satellite images. Um, yeah, you probably use it as a base to to create the the building and outlines and everything, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, now, one of the other things is that it innate, one of the reasons why you can't rely directly on or a satellite photo is that the routing software for you know like trying to you know get directions from A to B. You know, like you go onto Google Maps and you say, oh, look, I really want to go to this. And so it points you, gives yeah, you a line. Yeah. That yeah, doesn't yeah, work yeah. For, for just images because yeah. it doesn't know what's a of road course. and so forth. Of course. I mean, Apple has unlimited resources and Apple Maps still sucks. So it's a very hard problem. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And because, and probably the reason why uh, they suck um, is that there at the end of the day needs to be a human who like draws the line that is the street mm. and for some countries there are no addresses so samoa you do not like if you have an airbnb and you you know you visit samoa yeah you will not get a street address you'll just get a village name how do you send a postcard there or like a, you c- anything <laughs> you cannot send a postcard if you you send a postcard to the village and like with the name on it, and they'll just kind of uh, like it, it stops at the post office. The post <laughs> office is, yeah, and like, uh, and there are actually quite a large number of countries that have really bad addressing systems. Like it's remarkable how well it's not remarkable, but it's one of those biases that we have as uh, you know people in developed countries mm-hmm. that you can send a letter to a house and for it to be there perfectly. Yeah, I think I, I saw a TED talk or something that like in Japan, they don't name the street, but they name the blocks or something like that. Yeah, I've heard that there's in Japan, it's similar, but I don't know how it works because obviously in Japan, you can still send letters to people in Japan. Yeah, yeah, but 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 still like the, just like they're naming the different parts. So like in at them like streets have no name it's just it's blank area and then blocks have yeah. a name and then house numbers right. go like by the time the building was built wow so the newer the building the bigger the number Is that so? and that makes no sense right <laughs> it's just like <laughs> not to it but how do you find <laughs> anything yeah well actually this is one of the i mean uh we're kind of yeah getting very 
yeah, I mean, if we're happy to talk about tangents and strange things. Oh, yeah, then it, whatever. Okay, cool. Like, this is, <laughs> this is perfect. Then uh, there's a really fascinating uh, kind of battle in these address, like, there's almost like a meta address system that different players have addressing systems that people are trying to um, push. So the most famous is this thing called what three words. So it's it's a hash, a, a hash yeah, yeah, yeah. of a location. And Google has a version called plus codes, or it's actually not branded as Google anymore. Um, and Samoa, actually, I talk about Samoa because I went to a conference last week, um, this thing called FOSS 4G, um, like FOSS 4 Geo Geography, Free and Open Source 4. Geospatial. Mm -hmm. The uh, yeah, so Google has plus codes. Samoa has this new thing where every two meter square has its own identifier. But unlike what three words, this new identifier is hierarchical. So there is some understanding of if a number is close to your number, then it will be close spatially to you. Right. Okay. Whereas the problem with say a what three words is that there is no relationship between. Yeah. No. You cannot infer distance based on someone else having a different, um, yeah. Even if one of the words is the same, you still may be in different parts of the world. Yeah, and just to give a, a quick explanation, like what three words basically divided the entire world in like uh, five by five meter squares, I think, something like that. And every one of those squares has like unique three words that name it. So um, the idea is that if you don't know where you are, you can open that app and it will tell you like the... Um, three words that you can then relay to like 911 or wherever and they can put this in and they know exactly where you are like which is useful if you're somewhere like in in the wild right somewhere where there are no houses or whatever it's extremely interesting like it's extremely powerful yeah because coordinates are hard to communicate like it's easy to for gps to tell you exact coordinates but just like typing it in you're gonna make a mistake and you're like it's somewhere completely else yeah, and probably when you really don't want to make a mistake. Yeah. Like if you're in the bush and you have hypothermia and you... <laughs> um, yeah, because three words, even if you misspell them, it's still like much easier to, to find you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, now the other project, you know, we're talking about like what other hobbies um, I have. And like, and especially with the, the podcast of like parallel passions, like an embarrassing... <laughs> an embarrassing hobby of mine is actually crowdsourced biology mm. and i say yes. embarrassing because um there is a site uh iNaturalist or a community of people who take photos of objects in the world and build up distribution maps for every species in the world and i am one of those stupid people who <laughs> whenever they're out for a walk <laughs> <laughs> take photos of mushrooms or plants or uh or birds and uh send them onto the site and kind of create a map of in both time and space of where organisms live and um yeah so, so this is actually one of the other things that i would love to be able to do if i had some more free time is kind of get out and um and learn, well, New Zealand has some very, very interesting biology. So if you look at New Zealand on a map, uh, you'll see that, you know, it looks like maybe it was kind of like ripped away from Australia mm -hmm. and then kind of torn in half. Mm -hmm. That's eh, close enough to what actually happened. So we have been isolated from the rest of the world for a very long time. So our animals and plants have evolved in a in a way that is very strange biology biologically. So, for example, we have no mammals except for three species of bat. <laughs> but uh, so we have no native rats or you know in or cats or uh, or actually any animals at all. So instead, we have birds that have taken up the bio the biological niche hmm. of say rodents. Uh, or so you have many species of flightless bird. There are parrots that live in the mountains because so you have the, the world's only alpine parrot. <laughs> and 
Yeah, I, I know of that parrot that is like a, a Slack emoji and whatever, like the Shiroko or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, the Slack emoji. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this is a New Zealand bird. Um, and in fact, he has a name. His name is Sirocco. Yeah, yeah, and Sirocco, yeah. like the. Um, and he is a. Uh, he is one of less than 300 birds of his species. Yeah, I, I, I followed that rabbit hole down once. Like I bought a t-shirt that support that. And then uh, I, I saw you can also like um, uh, be like a, a mentor or no, not a mentor. I think like a parent of sorts or something to the parrot. Okay, you can adopt a bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can adopt a bird. That's the that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I went down that rabbit hole, but then I just like, yeah, I didn't do anything with it. But it's... Uh, well, yeah. you know, New Zealand appreciates that. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> we have some other really amazing birds. So uh one of my favorites is well it's just, it's kind of a sad story the um this is there's a bird species called the fairy tern so a tern is a very small bird um, mm -hmm. about the size of your hand a little bit smaller um now our fairy tern evolved at a time or at least adjusted its behavior at a time when there were no dogs and no cats and uh and so it's quite a stupid bird it can't make its own <laughs> nest it lays eggs on the beach oh yeah just on the beach like in a rock so <laughs> uh, like in, a, in like a rock kind of a little rock hole now it's an astonished like it's a beautiful bird but they're so rare now there's only sort of like i think about 20 or 30 oh. breeding pairs oh, wow. uh, and they own they're limited to one beach and there's big fences around this one beach um, and warning signs and like you, it's a protected area and big fences are around the whole thing. And yet we still get tourists walking over the beach, like into like taking photos a meter away from these nests and scaring the birds. And as soon as the parents leave, they flee the nest. Oh, and, uh, and that's, that's it. So that's that's that chick is now dead. Oh, that's sad. It's yeah. So it, that that's that's a bad story, but it's a beautiful bird, and um, so <laughs> I thought I'd mention it. Yeah, another one that's really really amazing is the godwit. So the godwit, I don't know why it's called the godwit. Um, it's a bird, or you know, again, really really small. It is about yeah, I think the. Yeah, maybe about the size of your hand, a little bit bigger. And every year it has the most amazingly long uh, migration. So it starts, I think, in the South Island of New Zealand, or but I think at least starts in New Zealand. You know, New Zealand is a bigger place than you think. Mm -hmm. And so someone is going to point me out, you know, you'll get a comment on the blog. Like, <laughs> it's like, hey, man, this guy McNamara, he didn't get his godwits right. So it starts over in New Zealand. And then every year flies to Alaska <laughs> and then flies back. <laughs> that's far for like 12, an airplane ride, right? Yeah. 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 It's like, that's a 13 hour plane ride. To, well, it's a 13 hour plane ride to Vancouver and and they go all the way to Alaska, which is even further. And, um, but why, like why Alaska? Like, well, ask the birds. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> And they're tiny. Uh, they lose about a third of their body weight. <laughs> so yeah, birds are stupid, right? Like they, yeah, right. Well, they're they're incredible. I mean, we have dinosaurs living with us all every day, and they are. Yeah. Um, anyway, if I could, you know, that that's a, that's a, that's another thing that I would like to be able to spend some more time on, which is taking photos of more interesting objects or interesting kind of interesting organisms and in particular um, some of New Zealand's amazing birds. And whenever I travel overseas, I always find something else incredible. Like, uh, so with canonical, you have this kind of crazy experience. You're everyone, everyone in engineering is remote. It's worldwide remote. Unlike most country, uh, most companies which have like a time zone barrier. And uh, to counteract or to keep everyone together twice a year, they have an internal, they have, they have sprints like mm -hmm. physically located. So you have two mm -hmm. conferences a year where everyone in the world flies 
And uh, in March this year, we were in Malta. Mm-hmm. Malta is, you know, has this reputation of just being kind of this dead rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and in some sense, it's true. I mean, all of their drinking water is sal- like is from salination plants. Um, yeah, I, I was there like 15 years ago, I think, roughly. And all I remember is the food was really bad. That's That's my memory of Malta. <laughs> Like I've never, right, okay. I've never eaten food that bad ever in my life. Oh, God. Well, you know, luckily we're staying in a hotel, so the food was fine. <laughs> no, I, the, uh, but every day I went out for a walk and found some plant that I had never seen in my entire life, and I think that's pretty special, actually, that we have. Um, and there's a similar situation. Well, it was similar but different. Um, close to or about two hours drive from where I live, there is a lighthouse that is on this rocky cliff. And on that cliff is a daisy that only lives on the cliff of the lighthouse. Hmm. And this it's called Castle Point. And just the fact that we have been able, like, well, no, there's the fact that there are these plants that biology has been able to create such specific niches in so many different areas. I just find absolutely fascinating. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I have this problem where I find too many things amazingly interesting and technology. I can just kind of get myself completely lost in the most stupid technical details. I mean, I absolutely love exploring new programming languages. I love mm. everything there is to know about, uh, about data science and AI and, and all the rest of it. But also there is a lot of amazing depth to, to the, 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 the planet that we live in. And I, I've always kind of, I mean, I've been a vegetarian for 15 years or a little bit more than that, actually. And so I don't really have the problem, but, but I do think it's strange that we only as a society, basically it's like your food either comes from beef or chicken or, you know, or fish, or let's say like maybe 10 species. Yeah. It's crazy that, you know, there's all this diversity and yet we limit ourselves to foods of like maybe 50, 50 plants and animals or whatever, you know, mm. whatever, even if you're like, if you have a pure plant-based vegan diet, you probably still only have like a slither of the food that, you know, you could be eating because, yeah. uh, well, like our supply chains are all such that it's just so much more productive to be able to focus on wheat or like pick your crop. Like mm. that's what we make. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's just, there's, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of richness, richness to our world. I, I think we could we could uh, dive into any of this topic for another hour, but uh, <laughs> I, I guess I guess we have to wrap up at at one point. Um, and uh, one one question that I always have at the end is like, um, if you would have to name three things that made like a lesson impression or changed your life in a way, and this could be like books or articles or videos or whatever, like three things that sort of made you who you are or like three things you could recommend to someone what would what would those be uh, i think becoming a father was a huge, huge change for me i think that before i was a dad i was uh i was significantly less confident in my own abilities to um, be a more empathetic person i another thing that really changed who i was uh, for a long time was being made redundant, actually, like losing my job hmm. um, for something that I was not, you know, I had uh, very early in my career when I was about 24, I actually went through two redundancies that really changed. It basically made me completely cynical and, uh, but and it kind of forced me to choose my own way. Like it forced me to say that I needed to develop the skills um, that I wanted to. And I think maybe the third thing, would be participating in open source, actually. I think participating in open source projects has been able to be, it's opened so many doors for me personally and professionally. I wouldn't have got involved with any of this mapping stuff. I wouldn't have got involved with open data. I wouldn't have got involved with AI um, because open source allowed me to 
experiment with programming and coding without needing a degree and without having the credentials. No one asked me when I submitted a pull request, you know, like, do you have the right degree? Did you go to the right university? Yeah. Um, and for me, as someone who basically was told by the world that even though you've got the right degree, the you know, you can't have the, the job that you have, like, fought for. So um, being welcomed into a new community has been – was really powerful for me. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great and, and, and good three things. Um, yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for um, your time and, and the discussion. Like I said, I, th I have a feeling we could talk for, like, several more hours. But, uh, yeah, we have to, <laughs> have to wrap up <laughs> well, at some look, point. Hey. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, um, yeah, no, I hope I haven't, you know, been too crazy and like off on every tangent possible. No, but, but that's good. Um, that's good. That's okay, what this great. is all yeah, about. I mean, if you do, <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, um, all the best and thank you so much. Thank hope you. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. Bye. Ciao. All right. This is my interview with Tim. I would love if you would share this podcast with your friends and followings on your social mediums of choice. Retweet, like, repost, whatever. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please post a review there. And if you use a different app like Breaker, Overcast, or anything else that supports liking or favoriting, I'd appreciate your action there as well. You can also financially support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash p-a-r-p-a-s-p-o-d. Or open the show notes and follow the Patreon link there. Thank you. You can find this show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at ParapassPod on all of them. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website, parallelpassion.com 38. Thank you for listening and have a passionate day.